0: Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn into Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. It's a great opportunity for us once again to study the Word of God together. We have been enjoying our time in our study of the Gospel of Luke as we have been learning all about Jesus Christ in order that we might know with certainty all the things we have been taught about Jesus Christ. This is the intent of the writer as Luke writes these things for his dear friend Theophilus, as we saw in chapter 1, and he has shared with him many, many truths concerning Jesus Christ. And we have come to our time in Luke chapter 7, and we have begun to look at verses 18 through 35. It's a larger section of, of Luke's Chapter here, chapter seven, and it's uh, we've covered the first part of it up to verse twenty-three, and we saw that that there is a great danger in stumbling over Jesus Christ. Right, the apostle, I mean uh, John the Baptist had perplexed faith. We called it. He had a a question in his mind as to Jesus Christ, and not uncommon for the Jews to have that, even one who was the cousin of Jesus, because each and every Jew at the time would have believed that when the Messiah came, there would be a kingdom set up that would relieve them from all of the oppression that they were under from the government over them. That was the Roman government at the time. And of course, John was thinking similarly. And so John in verse 18 dispatches some disciples to Jesus. So last Lord's Day, we looked at those verses, verses 18 through 23. And this morning, we are going to pick up where we left off, beginning in verse 24. As I said, we already know from our study last time that this text, at least in a micro sense, if you will, in the the micro issues of it, is about John the Baptist. That's really the, the... the scene at which we are brought into this reality of John the Baptist and really who John the Baptist is and his ministry. But as it is about John the Baptist in a micro sense, it's only about John the Baptist in a cursory kind of fashion, at least in that sense, because in a macro sense, it is really about Jesus Christ. Of course, we understand that in an intellectual sense when we think of Scripture as a whole. All of Scripture points to and directs our attention at the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one in whom there is salvation. And yet in the vignettes that we come through throughout the Gospels, there are uh, micro-subjects, micro-matters that are taking place. And so this one is revolving around John the Baptist, and yet in the larger sense it is about Jesus Christ. So while we are looking at this and hearing about the greatness of John the Baptist, the ultimate intent from Luke's perspective is for us to know the truth about the greatness of Jesus Christ. That while John the Baptist was great in his ministry here on this earth, and we ought to recognize that in the sense of the prophecy and the plan of God and His redemptive plan, there is one greater, and it is Jesus Christ. It is He who is the Savior of those who would believe. It is Jesus Christ who is the Redeemer of sinful man. It is Jesus Christ through whom there is salvation from the wrath of God. As Acts tells us, there is no one else and no other name on earth by which a person is saved except the name Jesus Christ. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, is working to show that he is the one who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about the one who would come and save his people from their sins. This is the one. Jesus is the one. And so here in Luke chapter 7, Jesus begins to talk about the greatness of John the Baptist. Not so much so, though, that we might begin to praise John. Jesus isn't Highlighting the ministry and all that John has done so that John would receive the maximum amount of praise but so that we might understand how John's ministry points to even the greater one who is Jesus himself. It's interesting when you think about life how often we are simply just curious about things. People, famous people, we might go somewhere to see something, go to some event to see something, not because we initially believe in that person or we believe what they are doing, we are simply curious about them. And that is probably a good definition of the crowds that followed Jesus. Even so, the crowds that followed John. They were curious about John. They They believed that John was a prophet. They believed in who he said he was. And yet they were only really, in many ways, just curious about him. And we'll see that as it unfolds here in our time this morning. So here in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, Jesus, well, really beginning in verse 18, but our time this morning, Jesus validates the ministry of John the Baptist and he does it by rebuking the crowd. He rebukes the crowd. And in some ways, because it's in the Gospels and because we are here studying it this morning and it's all Scripture is profitable for us, for training in righteousness, it is, a, in a sense, a rebuke for us. And it's a rebuke about what I just said, about only being curious. Only being curious about the truth. I think this is a perennial problem in evangelicalism at large, particularly in our Western world where we come and we hear the truth. We might even in our own personal Bible studies open the truth and we read the truth and we, we spend time with it and yet we don't do it. And all we're really showing is that we're curious about the truth but not serious with the truth. This is the problem with the crowd. They're curious about the truth because if you see John as great, then you cannot miss Jesus who is greater. Notice what the text says for us beginning in verse 24 down to verse 30. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the multitudes about John, that is Jesus speaking to the crowds about John. And he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are in royal palaces. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people had and the tax gatherers heard, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. And Jesus, of course, speaking to the crowd, these are... Jews who were following John the Baptist around, and now they are following Jesus around, so there wouldn't have been a person in what we understand even at the time of Israel who wouldn't have seen John as a prophet of God. They would have recognized John for what he was. The Gospels record for us that the entire region had gone out to him in the wilderness. This is what the Gospels say about John's ministry. We even studied that earlier in the Gospel of Luke. Why? Why did they go out? They went out because they saw him just as what he was. They saw him as a prophet. And so when they were in the presence of John, when when they went out into the wilderness, they heard him preach. And John preached repentance and the forgiveness of sin. John preached a fiery message. We we might even label it fire and brimstone preaching. He preached an uncompromising message about repentance because of sin and that there was forgiveness for sin upon repentance. And those who came to John were those who were, in a sense, serious about their sin, serious about their confession before God. John baptized them. And that baptism was just like we see today, an outward display of this inward confession before God and a need before God of forgiveness of their sins. They recognized their sin. They went to John. They heard the message of John, and John baptized them as they acknowledged their sin. And all of the region was there to see it. All of the region was there to hear the message. Was reminded, even thinking about this, of the early days of the revivals here in New England and and Whitfield's preaching when he came from England. And it was said that thousands of people would stand out in the field to hear John Whit or to hear George Whitfield preach. Up to twenty five thousand people. He, he preached apparently just over the road in Exeter, where thousands of people would hear him come and preach. Well, that's how it was with John. They were there to see what was taking place. And all of this was an important picture to the Jews. To those who went there, all that was happening was was a picture in their mind. You say, why? Well, because up to that point, up to the point of John's ministry, the only ones who would go through any kind of baptism ceremony, any kind of ritualistic ceremony whereby you would be confessing sins, would have been Gentiles. Gentiles who were, who were becoming and proselytes into Judaism. They were converting to Judaism. No Jew would have ever been baptized. Baptism wasn't something that they did. And yet when John comes along, he begins his ministry, and it's a ministry by which he is baptizing with water, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and even Jews are being baptized. Why? Because they're identifying themselves as sinners. Sinners in need of God's saving grace. Shocking. Shocking. This is a religion, at least taught by the Pharisees, that you could earn your way into heaven. And yet here is John preaching, no, 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 that's not how it goes. You must repent of your sins. And so they were saying to everybody, I'm no better. Those who were being baptized by John are just standing up in the waters of baptism and with their life and through their confession and through that baptism are saying to all their Jewish friends and all their Jewish neighbors and the entire region who had come out to see, I'm no better before God than anybody. Even those pagan non-Jewish nations that are around it. And so when John was preaching and baptizing, it would have been a shocking ministry that he had in all of Israel. That's why we saw already in our study in chapter 3 and verse 7, John says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. See, he's not saying, hey, listen, somebody came and warned you that wrath is coming, so you better go out to John. He's saying, you came out here for a reason to see me. Why would you come out? You don't think wrath's upon you at all. So who warns you of the wrath to come? Because wrath is upon you, and if, if you confess your sins, you can be forgiven of your sins. And yet here, even in our text, in verse 30, it says, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. They weren't being baptized by John. Those who were being baptized by John understood that they were guilty before a holy God because of their sin. So why have you come? You believe you're already righteous, John is saying to the Pharisees. You're, you believe that your efforts, that your life, that your keeping of the law, which you don't keep anyway, is good enough. Go, he says in verse chapter 3, verse 8, go and show fruits in keeping with repentance, and stop holding to your heritage as a means of salvation. Stop saying your children of Abraham that that's good enough. So John's preaching of repentance and the baptism for the forgiveness of sin was an entire paradigm shift for the thinking of the Jews. John came preaching grace and judgment, that the Messiah was to come with grace, but at the same time, the Messiah was going to have his winnowing fork in his hand. He was going to clear the threshing floor and separate the wheat from the chaff. Chaff would be burned up with unquenchable fire. Of course, we understand the metaphor. We understand what is being talked about there. The wheat, metaphorically speaking, of those who believe the gospel. The chaff is those who do not. Wheat being the children of the kingdom of God. The chaff being those who are outside the kingdom. And so while John preached, even though the words were hard to hear, people came. They flocked to John, and they continued to come. John was uncompromising as he stood on the truth of God, even to the point where he was thrown in prison. And why would the people come? Because they believed he was a prophet. They believed he was a prophet, one who spoke on behalf of God. That's that's really what the, the word prophet means. The idea that someone has received from God the Word of God and their voice speaks on behalf of God. Of course, we have the Word of God now, and so when we preach and we teach, we, in one sense, are a little p prophet. We're speaking the words of God. We better get the Word of God right if we're going to speak on behalf of God. That's a little PSA for the hermeneutics class. We better get it right. Even Herod fearfully didn't hurt John initially. Why? Because he knew that he was a prophet. And even though John had had confronted the sin of Herod, Herod thought there was something about John that intrigued him, and so he even had him around for a while. It wasn't until his pride got in the way, whereby he had to give to this young girl who danced in front of the party, up to half the kingdom, and she was then manipulated or spoken to by her mother that she wanted the head of John the Baptist on a platter, so he had him beheaded. So they saw John as a prophet. Most of all, they were just curious. They were just curious about John and curious, therefore, about Jesus. So Jesus uses this moment, this moment whereby John dispatches a couple guys who had seen him in prison, disciples of his, he sends them down to Jesus to ask him these questions. And Jesus uses this moment to highlight himself as it ought to be. Jesus is the greater one. And Jesus validates the ministry of John, and by doing so, He rebukes those who are simply curious about Him. And so we pick up in verse 24, the messengers sent from John have now left. They've left. They have begun to return to John with the answer from Jesus. We know the answer. The answer is, go tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. After they came with the questions, are you the expected one? Jesus has this massive outpouring of divine power where he heals the sick, and he tells them, go and report to John in verse 22. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And so they're off with the message. And immediately after their departure, Jesus turns to the crowd. The multitudes who were there. And the implication is that they knew of this exchange between the, the disciples of John and Jesus. In other words, what happened in that moment where those, these guys asked the question and Jesus begins to heal all this, took some time for Jesus to heal all these people and Jesus answers and so the people are hearing about what's going on even though the crowd is quite large. And so lest anyone get a wrong idea about John, Jesus addresses the crowd with three indicting questions. Three indicting questions. And what he says about John becomes the indictment of their own hearts because they were neither satisfied with John nor will they be satisfied with Jesus. And you can see that in verses 31. Through 35, that we'll get to next time. So Jesus begins to probe the crowd with these questions. Now, I trust as I read this text for us just a minute ago that you notice that twice Jesus says, I say to you. In other words, this is what you see. This is what You've seen me do. This is what you've seen John do. Now let me explain it to you with utter clarity. You see it in verse 26. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, one who is more than a prophet. And then verse 28, I say to you, among women, there is no one greater than John. Now those are important words for us to hear. Important words for us to just stop for a moment and think about. Why? Because Jesus is saying to the people who are following after him, listen, what you think you know about John isn't enough. What you think you know about John and what has happened to you with John isn't enough. In other words, among those of this world, there is none greater than John. Among those in The human realm, in humanity, there is none greater than John, but there is a position that is greater than John. Certainly John was great. In fact, the message given by the angel Gabriel to Zacharias said just that. Chapter 1, verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And that's the declaration from God. Gabriel, get down there. Tell Zacharias that the son to come is going to be great. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. But his greatness, notice, has nothing to do with him. And it has nothing to do with what the world thinks about greatness. In fact, it has everything opposite to do with what the world considers great. You notice John has no earthly riches. He's one who lives in the wilderness. There is no earthly riches. He has no resume of degrees behind his name. Nothing that the Apostle Paul would have championed prior to his conversion. You remember what the Apostle Paul said about himself? Listen, if somebody wants to boast in the flesh, they, they they couldn't have a resume greater than mine. I mean, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I am blameless according to the law. I mean, Paul was saying, listen, if you want a litany of religious activity and works by which someone is gaining righteousness, there's no one higher than me. John had none of that. John was a guy who lived in the desert, lived in odd clothing, and ate bugs and honey. I mean, today, somebody comes out of the woods like that, we go, what is wrong with this dude? Maybe not here in New Hampshire, maybe not. Right? John was that kind of guy. By all earthly estimation, he wasn't great. And yet, because of what God had done with John, because God had dispatched John in his ministry, and who John knew and who John pointed to, he was great. Right? Why? Because God's way of greatness is totally opposite of the world's way of greatness. Jesus says, in fact, he was the greatest man who ever lived. That means, beloved, that he is, get this, greater than Adam, greater than Noah, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than David, greater than Isaiah, Jeremiah, or any of the named prophets. greater than even the prophet get this i saw this today i've read through the bible many times and i saw this today in luke chapter 11 get this greater than the prophet abel you say wait a minute abel wasn't a prophet yes he was jesus equates him with the prophets you go where luke chapter 11 verse 48 to 51 don't go there and read it yet you can check that out later So he's even greater than every person listed throughout the books of history except one. The only person who is greater than John in all of the kingdom of this world is Jesus Christ. It was he who made John great. So our text says in verse 24, when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the multitudes about John. Now remember what had happened previously, right? John had, like I said, dispatched these two disciples of his to go to Jesus and ask that self-exposing question. The reality of where John was living in his mind as he's rotting away in the prison. John is perplexed. Are you the one we should be looking for, or is there somebody else? Am, Am I missing something in what I understand from what I know from the prophets? Those are self exposing questions. Those are questions that help everyone realize John was perplexed as to the outworking of all that he understood from Scripture. He knew that the Messiah would come, he knew that the Messiah would pour grace out upon the world, he knew that the blind would see, the lame would walk, the deaf would hear. He knew the dead would be raised and the gospel would be preached. He knew all of that for sure and he saw that all of that was happening in the ministry of Jesus. But what about the judgment? What about the winnowing fork? What about setting up the kingdom? What about clearing out the rejectors who needed to be judged? What about all of that? Are you the one who's going to do that or there's somebody else? That's what John's thinking. And, of course, Jesus validates who he is to those questioners by that divine display of power. Jesus heals people. And his intent is rebuking those listening about simply being curious. Curious about John and curious about himself. In other words, you couldn't have gone to see John and then not follow me. If you went out to see John and you were serious about John's message, then really, why aren't you serious about what I'm doing? Notice what he says in the second part of verse 24. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? This is the first indicting question. Did you go out to look at a reed shaken by the wind? See, Jesus has now got everybody's mind focused on John. Everyone's mind is there. John is now the subject. His disciples have come to see Jesus. Jesus has put on a display of divine power for his greatness, for all to see greater than anything John had ever done. And so Jesus is saying to the people, when you went out to John, when you were driven out there by what it was that was driving you out there, was it out of curiosity or was it out of seriousness? Were you really serious about seeing John? What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? It's an interesting phrase. It's an expression. uh, Speaks of the character of a person. He's not obviously talking about a literal reed by the side of water. It's a metaphor. Jesus is using what's around, what people know. He's speaking of of the character of a man. Was he a man who was swayed by popular opinion? Is that who you went out to see? Someone who who followed anything and everything that came down to popular trends of the day? Did you go out to that? Is it someone who has no solid conviction about anything? Did you go out to see that kind of guy? I mean, you've traveled a long way, It wasn't easy to get to John. He wasn't close to town. He was out in the desert. I mean, you left everyday living to go out to that desolate place. For what? What was it? Did you go out to see this little tiny thing by the side of water that blows in the wind? Something that is normal? Something regular? Something that follows every wind that comes around? No. No. You didn't go out to the desert for that, did you? No, you believed that there was something important out there. There was something being fulfilled from prophecy that you knew from your own childhood and growing up years in the synagogue. You had heard the prophecies of Isaiah. So you didn't go out there to see somebody with no conviction. No, you went there to see a man who preached, a man who believed what he preached. That was curious to you. You see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is setting them up for conviction about who he is. Jesus is setting up the crowd, taking them to a place in an apologetic sense, in a defense of who he is sense so that they are faced face to face with their own Hypocrisy. didn't go out because you were just curious about another theory of life, did you? John certainly didn't do any vacillating in his message. John, as we know, spoke with conviction. His messages were direct. They were to the point. You either repent of your sins and follow after Jesus, or you will be judged of eternal punishment. That was the message of John. He pointed even to Jesus. There goes Jesus, the Messiah, the one who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God. That was John's essential message. That was John's preaching, and it never changed. So you didn't go all the way to hear some wishy-washy message about how you could better yourself. Someone who said, the same old fluff just wrapped up in different packaging that the Pharisees would say all the time. You didn't go out there to see that. Is that what you went out to see? No. You went out to see someone with conviction, someone who spoke that way. And he asked the second indicting question in verse 25. Notice, but what did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? It's interesting because the force of the grammar here implies that Jesus was saying it this way. Well, if that's not what you went out to see, then what did you want to see? Did you want to see, notice, a man dressed in soft clothing? If you didn't want to go out to see somebody who just goes with every whim of the crowd then what did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft clothing? See, a man who's tossed by the wind, someone who just goes with the crowd and goes anyway and bends his will to the influence of those, certainly would accommodate those who are rich, certainly would accommodate those who could give them an advantage and reward them with the finest of things. The idea is that if John was looking to garner favor with men and he easily could have, and he could have been dressed in clothes much more than what he wore, it wasn't any kind of luxury that drew you to John. That's what Jesus is saying. He didn't have any. He didn't have any luxury. If you wanted luxury, if you wanted to see people like that, you don't go to the desert, you go to palaces, right? man dressed in soft clothing? No. Behold, those who are splendidly clothed live in luxury. They're in royal places. You don't go out into the desert to see the rich. You go to where the rich are. They're not hanging out in those desolate places. Those are the ones who are dressed in fine clothing. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, John was no earthly attraction for you. It was no earthly attraction by his message. He certainly was no earthly attraction by what he wore. That's not why you went. No, you went out to see a man who had courage. You went out to see a man who even rebuked the king. A man who spoke the message of truth, who was faithful to only one. He was faithful to God and his word. That's who you went out to see. It's interesting here in verse 25, because the word soft implies someone with effeminate tendencies. That's the original language implication. Someone, in other words, who who's a compromiser to those in power so that they can have their own preeminence. You don't go out to see a man who compromises For the sake of his own position, no. A soft man, is that who you went to see? No. No, John was no person of flattery. He was no person of personal gain. That's obvious. He was a person who was willing to go to prison because he spoke the truth, even to the powerful. So Jesus says thirdly in verse 26, then what did you go out to see? What did you go out to see his his noose around their hypocritical neck is just getting tighter and tighter? So Jesus asks the same question, but now he gives an added title. What did you go out to see? A prophet, a prophet. It doesn't mean did you go out just to see a prophet to look at a prophet. No, he said, you went out because he was a prophet. They could tell he was a true prophet. They went out to see this man who spoke on behalf of God. They went out not to just be curious, but to hear the message, to do what he was preaching. Jesus is saying to them, did you really? Did you really go out for that reason? Yes, and one who is more than a prophet, he says. You not only went out to see one who speaks for God, but one who is even more than that. He and his message was to prepare you for the coming of the very one who is speaking to you. Notice verse 27. This is the one about whom it is written. Not only is John a prophet, but the prophets wrote about John. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John was a prophet in the truest sense, but John was also the fulfillment of prophecy in the truest sense. In other words, John is the one prophet whose ministry was predicted by previous prophecy. Prophet Malachi tells us that there was one to come who would prepare the way of the Messiah. The angel Gabriel, as he has been dispatched by God to tell Zacharias and Mary about it, the angel Gabriel had referred to Malachi's prophecy when he came. When he foretold of John's birth, he he was quoting Scripture. And Zechariah himself made reference to the very prophecy on the day when John was to be circumcised, eight days after his birth, when Zechariah's tongue was loosed, as the angel had said would happen. When he could speak, he refers to the very prophecy of Malachi. And now here's Jesus referring to it again. John, John is not like all the other authentic prophets. He is the prophesied prophet who prepared the way for Messiah. So the greatness of John is connected to his unique calling. John was a prophet, and a prophet was one who spoke on behalf of God, but the greatness of John is unique because it's tied to his calling, this privilege of being the forerunner of the Messiah. No one had that task. And of course, we understand from Malachi and the intertestamental period before Gabriel had come and spoken to Mary, it had been 400 years since Malachi's prophecy. And so John was not just a prophet. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He was the messenger that went before the face of Jesus Christ he was the messenger who was sent to prepare the way before Jesus Christ to set the people's hearts attuned to the Messiah coming John was the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 people flocked to him and thereby acknowledging his greatness Jesus is saying is that why is that why you came to John He says, what did you do with John? John's messengers had come. They have asked the question. Jesus has done this miraculous day of healing. He dispatches them back, and he asks the crowd, what did you do with John? He's saying, I'm not here to diminish John. I want to highlight the ministry of John because the ministry of John points to me. And what did you do with John? You were drawn to the conviction that John had. He knew he was a prophet, but not just a prophet. You saw him as the prophesied prophet who was to come and announce the arrival of the Messiah. That's who you saw him as. You know him to be that. That's why you were telling him to publicly baptize you. You didn't care what others might have thought of you. That's why you listened to his message. That's why it resonated in your hearts about sin and the need for God's forgiveness because you went out to a prophet and one who's more than a prophet. That's why you went out there. Jesus is saying to them, Indictingly, How then can you accept John? but you don't accept me. You see, the implication, beloved, is this. Because they don't want Jesus, then why do you come to John? If You don't want me. Why do you come to John? Why? Because John points to Jesus. See, why do you want John? John points to me. John is okay. When his message is generic, you don't mind John when it's a generic message as if John ever had one. You don't mind John when when you hear something that that you think you can do yourself a work of your own efforts. You don't mind preaching of a preacher when when somehow you can get out of it and it's just fluffy and okay. But to say, for the preacher to say you must believe in Jesus, that he's the one who takes away sins, pointing to Jesus Christ, that you must follow him, for a preacher to say that, well, that's a whole different story. Don't do that. Tell us to believe in God, preacher, but don't tell us we have to have Jesus. Joe, Jesus has the people pinned down right where... He wants them by their own actions. He has just exposed their heart. You know John was great, he says. And I even say to you, among those born among women, verse 28, there is no one greater than John. No one greater than John. You're right. John is great. And in fact, I'll tell you this, no one is greater The John who has been born among women. Jesus emphatically says, I say to you. I say to you. He's speaking with authority. John was certainly born of women. Jesus means of the human realm. Of the human realm, just like all of us. And of strict humanity, there was no one greater let's not miss the great paradox. Let's not miss the great paradox here. Verse 28. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I mean, if John was that great in humanity, And it seems rather paradoxical for Jesus to say that the very least one in the kingdom of God is greater than John. No one on earth in strict humanity could be greater than John. Who is or who has been greater? No one declared. No one truly acknowledged except the very one who created him and commissioned him. That's the ultimate greater one. John was a great prophet and had a great privilege. And so when we understand John's greatness, doesn't that make this final phrase in verse 28 rather shocking? When You understand what God had done with John the Baptist. Doesn't that make this rather shocking to us? He who is the least in the kingdom is greater than John. How can that be true? I'll tell you how it can be true. Because of who we are attached to. Jesus says, you went out to see this great person. Why do you reject me? I'm the king of the kingdom. John was the mega prophet of the Old Testament, the great prophet, the mega prophet. But in the kingdom of God, the kingdom whereby God directs his people by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through his word, in the kingdom of God, our greatness has nothing to do with us. Our calling and everything that we are has to do with Jesus Christ. We bring nothing to the table. It's all of Christ, the one with whom we are attached to. Jesus is saying, listen, if you think John was great and you want to follow John, you missed the whole point. John was pointing to me because John wants you to be in the very kingdom that John is part of, the kingdom of God. So, we are greater in that our spiritual privilege far exceeds our earthly privilege. Our spiritual privilege far outweighs anything that we might be in an earthly sense. We have better access to God through Christ, don't we? We were outside the kingdom, now we are inside the kingdom. Colossians tells us we were transferred from the domain of darkness into the domain of His Son. And we have greater access then to God through Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1 says. John preached of the promised Messiah to come. We have the promised Messiah indwelling us. Far more than we could ever ask or think. so Jesus is saying, listen, if you know of John, if you know of John, then come to me. You followed after John, great. Now come to me because John pointed to me. Not just for salvation, beloved. Jesus is to say, oh yeah, just come to me and I'll give you your fire insurance into heaven. you go on and do whatever you want to do. No, 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 no. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is light, right? Come to me. Stop trying to, by your efforts, work your way into glory. You can't do it. It's an impossible task. There's no way you could ever get into glory on your own. So come to me for salvation, and in coming to me for salvation, I will give you the spirit which will give you the, the energy and the power through me, to obey what I tell you to do. So it's not just come to me because you want to be saved. It's come to me because in salvation there is obedience. There is freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. So far too often we hear the who of Jesus We embrace the intellectual reality of the who of Jesus. And yet how we are to live in knowing Jesus, we just stay curious about. Oh, gee, that's curious. As if we can know Jesus, we can have a relationship with Jesus, and yet not have any obedience to Jesus. Notice verse 29, when all the people, and the tax gatherers heard, course, when it says all the people, it means all those who weren't in leadership in the ministry of the Jewish people. This wasn't the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which verse 30 says Pharisees and the lawyers, that's who he's talking about. The law experts and those who ran the synagogues and the Pharisees. When all the other people and the tax gatherers, the lowest of lows, the, the ones who were really outcast because they worked for the enemy. When they heard, they acknowledged God's justice. What's God's justice? That if you do not repent of your sins, you will be judged forever. That's God's justice. This isn't the kind of justice we hear about today in our foolish world. No, God's justice is a justice of this. I am righteous and I will give my righteousness to no one who is remaining in their sinfulness and rejecting me. They acknowledge God's justice. They've been baptized with the baptism of John. These dregs of the earth went out to John and they said, I'm a sinner need, in need of the saving grace of God. But the religious rulers of the day, the Pharisees, and the lawyers, what did they do? They rejected God's purpose for themselves. They hadn't been baptized by the baptism of John. They didn't acknowledge anything in themselves. Don't you notice? You realize, beloved, there's no... 29 a there's no verse 29 a there's no middle ground there's no middle ground you either embrace jesus christ or you don't there is no well maybe well you know they were a good person well you know they they did these things in their life and so you know how do we know no this is the reality god's justice is god's justice god will Either save or he will condemn. Jesus' ministry is validated. His ministry is validated. And John's ministry is validated. And so Jesus points out the crowd's hypocrisy. He points out their hypocrisy in verses 31 to 35. We'll, of course, see that next time. He says, what shall I compare this generation to? What are they like? Well, we'll certainly see the hypocrisy of the crowds. So who are you following? You're curious about Jesus, serious about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I trust enough has been said. It has honored your name. I pray that we, by the power of your spirit, can think through these things, be challenged by these things in our own life, and cause our hearts to be affected in such a way that it would motivate us to run to Christ. Whether that be a Christian who is just living in sin, repentance and belief and walking by faith in Christ or an unbeliever who needs to repent of sin, believe in Jesus Christ and know what living really is. Lord, that is our desire this morning. May that be the grace that we know from you because you promised. For those who are his, you will never leave us or forsake us. You always do what is right. You are always drawing those whom you have chosen to save. So thank you for that. Bring us back tonight, all. To your glory and grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.